Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Gong, a podcast hosting conversations about the earliest stages of startup sales and all the fun stories that come from companies with little cash, no precedence, and lots of guts. My name is Adriel, and I've led sales at four companies, twice as CEO, twice as the head of sales, and always with a love for the job and a fondness for fun stories. Today, we've got a special episode, and perhaps every episode is special in its own right, but, uh, but so is this one, perhaps a little specialer. Our guest today is Kyle Morris, and what makes this episode particularly special, in addition to all of Kyle's other wonderful qualities, is that Kyle is, among other things, the host of the Kaizen podcast, all about sales operations in the early stages. And we took this opportunity, there's two podcasters podcasting together, oh wow, 2019, to, to interview each other. And so you'll see Kyle start by interviewing me for the first half of the episode, something I haven't really done before. I've interviewed probably over 100 people in a variety of venues, but I've never been interviewed. So you'll hear me talk about how I think about selling something as seemingly futuristic as self-driving cars, how hard I work and what I do to gain a customer's trust, especially when I'm coming from the perspective of a tiny company and they might be a Fortune 100. And I'll share one pretty crazy story about how I got a group of nudists as one of my previous startup's biggest clients. And then we turn the table and I ask Kyle about his experiences leading companies through the early stages and everything he's learned. So who's Kyle Morris? Kyle has spent time as the director of lead generation and operations at GigYa, a company later acquired by SAP. Kyle grew his sales team from seven people to 75 in multiple markets. He learned a lot about managing a team during that process and that's really where we dig in uh, in this conversation. So I I learned a lot about things I don't know and I hope it was just as interesting to you. Currently, Kyle is the founder of Sift Data, which helps companies reduce churn and grow pipeline, and Kicksaw, a firm focused on helping companies scale. So I hope you enjoy my two-way conversation with Kyle Morris. Adriel, thanks for being on Kaizen Podcast. I'm excited to be on your Gong Podcast. Um, this is the first one I've done with a, a co-host where we're going to kind of split it 50-50, but I'm excited to talk a little bit about a lot of the scrappiness and a lot of the uh, kind of unique way that you sell. So I think what would be good for folks that are listening to the Kaizen Podcast who haven't heard of you before, give them a little sense of your background and, and what you're doing today. Sure. Well, Kyle, welcome to the Gong Podcast, and I'm so excited <laughs> to be on Kaizen. Um, my background, my background is us basically since I was a little kid, I was selling something or another. Uh, I started my first, you know, it was chocolates door to door for the Hebrew school back in middle school. Uh, didn't do so well at that. I actually lost an envelope full of money. So that was my first lesson about being protective about other people's money. Cause I had to pay all that out of my piggy bank. But, um, from there I started my first real company in ninth grade and, and that grew into uh, a fairly large e-commerce business doing organic superfoods. Um, that went through numerous entrepreneurial ventures throughout college and thereafter, all of which has been incredibly fun, some in B2C, predominantly in a B2B perspective. Um, so that's what I really love. And, and right now that's led me to leading sales at Udelve, which is a self-driving delivery vehicle company. And our vehicles have been out there doing deliveries for companies like Walmart, HEB, which is the largest grocer in Texas, XL Parts, which is the largest auto parts distributor. Um, down in the Southwest and a number of other large enterprises. So careers taken me through 
uh, a bunch of different avenues as a founder and as a head of sales and uh, been loving the early stage ever since. Yeah, and the self-driving car piece, the concept of how to even sell self-driving cars, I, I, I mean, I'm sure when the first copier came on the market, the first sales copier, first person selling copiers was having a hard time pitching that to people who didn't understand it. But how do you even, how do you even identify who you want to sell to? And how do you even create a sales process around something that didn't exist five years ago? Even the concept, people weren't even seriously considering it. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up that copier perspective because uh, that's actually one of the things I've been thinking about a lot over the last six months or so is saying, sure, self-driving cars are cool now, but 20 or 30 years from now, they'll they, they'll maybe be out of fashion. Like they'll yeah. be just uh, they'll be just sort of a standard in our lives. And so selling self-driving cars today are in many ways exactly like selling copiers in the late 60s, right after Xerox has invented the technology or uh, convincing people to get sewing machines which were which caused huge riots in the 1800s about whether or not they'll ever work. And so there's a lot of things about just a new technology that translate well from the past. Uh, specifically about identifying what customer set goes after, I think that's the most interesting part. So anybody founding a company, especially in an incredibly high tech environment, such as self-driving cars, virtual reality, anything crypto related. I mean, throw around a buzzword at any point in its life cycle, you know, genomic sciences in the late 90s, early 2000s. Anybody doing that needs to find the balance between the readiness of the technology and the readiness of the market. Because you can have a technology that's ready, but a market that's not willing to adopt. And the example I love there is Webvan. Uh, Webvan in the 90s came out and released this incredible technology that allow you to order groceries online. They had robotic warehouses. They had these this immensely beautifully planned internet connected value chain and the technology was remarkable to order groceries online. But the market wasn't ready. The market didn't have high speed internet. Most people in America didn't have internet. Most people were wary about getting anything online, let alone groceries. So that's a case where technology was ready while the market was not. Sure. Then you've got other examples where the market is very, very ready and they really want what you're selling, but the technology is not ready. Perhaps the most recent uh, relevance example is Theranos, where sure. the market loved Walgreens and Safeway and consumers loved what it would mean to get their they get their blood samples done with just a prick of a finger, but the technology simply wasn't there yet, and so that one crashed as well. So any new technology, self-driving cars included, need to find where the technology and the market meet. And so that's what we really spent the last bit of time doing, is finding the markets that we can focus on. Uh, for example, delivery is something we decided a much better market than passenger vehicles for autonomous vehicles. And then even within delivery, sub-segmenting that, sub-segmenting that further, we did deliveries for pharmacies, for grocers, for auto parts companies, for restaurants. We did it for all of them just to understand it. And now bit by bit by bit, we better we get to better understand where our technology is ready on the one hand and where the market wants us the most on the other. Yeah, the thing that comes to mind is uh, Crossing the Chasm. Have you read that or heard of that book before? I actually just reread it uh, for my yeah. second time this year because I love it so yeah. much. Yeah, it, I think I've read it 12 years ago in college and haven't read it since. But the idea being that, you know, you want to go after your innovators and early adopters before you go after your late majority, et cetera. So like you, it sounds like you're going after some of these, these types of companies because you're seeing them as uh, innovators or early adopters, but how are you going to them with a pitch? Because they're not sitting around thinking about self-driving cars and how that could improve their business. So how do you even identify who should I sell to? What's my message? Most companies like 
starting my own company, I'm solving a problem that I personally have. No one's got a problem with self-driving cars because no one's even got them yet. So like, how do you even take that to market? Well, that's, that's a great question. And when anybody thinks about, well, what kind of proposition are they coming with? The proposition is not, you don't have my product. Like you don't have my, my thing. You need to get my thing. Nobody cares about your thing. They care about the thing that they already have. So yes, in our case, no one's got self-driving cars, but everybody's got delivery drivers. Mm-hmm. And delivery drivers are an enormous SGNA expense that at some Fortune 100's top $2 billion a year just on delivery drivers. And so when we think about what the value is of a self-driving car in the delivery market, that's not just the fact that it's self-driving, it's what are the problems that we're solving. Well, in the current model, what people do have is they have drivers that are often expensive, sometimes unreliable, and the very, very best ones of these drivers aren't doing what really fulfills them. It's unscalable as well. You know, When you look at the website of a company um, in our target market, for example, I look all the time at the, uh, the job boards of companies like Advanced Auto Parts or AutoZone, and you look at their job boards and you see that they have something like 10,000 open positions for delivery drivers. Mm-hmm. Well, now you found the problem that self-driving cars are solving. It's not just cool to have a self-driving car, it's A, cheaper, and B, you have 10,000 open positions that you can't fill because we're at the point of lowest unemployment in history. 10,000 open driver jobs, if every driver costs you $40,000 a year, they must be bringing in at least 2X that amount. So you do some quick math and you're losing something like $800 million a year of potential sales off of not having that. And so that's the solution we come with. Yeah. And how do you deal with the fact that I'm guessing your auto zones and some companies like that are, you're going to have some folks who are maybe not so technically inclined. Of course, if you've got your Instacarts, those are obviously folks that are leaning into technology, but a lot of the companies that are relying on people because that's how they've done it for 150 years. How do you overcome that process in the sales process? Like, of course, you're looking for the innovators and early adopters, but to some extent, it's kind of it's hard to force people to adopt new technologies. Of course, and the answer there probably is quite simply that you can never convince anyone of anything. I think in sales generally, your job is not to figure out a way to trick your client or your prospect into understanding something. It's definitely not to convince them something. It's just to uncover what it is that they believe and how your product fits into their belief statement. So that goes in two ways. Sometimes we'll find a client who's just an absolute visionary. Um, he is that innovator that, that Jeff Moore writes about in Crossing the Chasm, and he or she wants your solution or your type of solution no matter what. They'll be first. They'll deal with the problems. They just recognize that self-driving cars fit into what their business needs to be over the next 10 years, and they will absolutely lead the charge. And that's fantastic because they're already convinced all you got to do is understand the story that they want to tell themselves, and you help them craft it. Now it's their job to, hopefully they're a high level stakeholder. Now it's their job to convince, perhaps it's the board, perhaps it's their other um, other colleagues and things like that. But on the other hand, you give a great point. You know, a lot of times we're selling into older industries, let alone self-driving or not, some of them just aren't as techie. Instacart, super techie. You say, hey, self-driving cars, we're down the block from you, come check them out. Uh, no problem at all. If you go after a company on the other hand, like AutoZone, which is based in Memphis or Advanced Auto Parts based in North Carolina or any massive regional grocery based in New Jersey or in Iowa or whatever it is, technology isn't at the forefront there. So then what they're looking for is reliability, right? They don't want to 
be the massive risk taker. They don't necessarily, they, they didn't build their business off of doing things in the craziest possible way. They built this business off of being reliable and off of being trustworthy. And so then we need to come across as a reliable and trustworthy vendor to them. So we need to tell them, hey, yes, you are doing something cutting edge, but not bleeding edge. And yes, it is going to be difficult, but our experience allows us to do a little bit of handholding through that process so that if you, all you need to say is self-driving cars will be a part of your solution for your customers 10 years from now. And if we can agree on that base statement, then it's our company's job to find a way to walk you through that chasm of your own, that technology chasm you have over the next 10 years. Yeah, and it must be getting essentially easier every day, right? More people are being more aware of the product and technology and the concept as well. But how do you even get your first customer? Because what you said, reliability is pretty critical. And if you don't have any customers, you're in a technology that no one's used, you don't have any customers, and you're trying to get your very first ones. How are you getting through to the first folks who, who don't have any social proof for you to point to that they're going to trust that you're reliable and can actually add value to them? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. When we when we launched the company, it was January 30th, 2018, and we did a big launch where we did a real autonomous delivery in San Mateo, California, and there was a big whole press event, and we drove two miles, fully self-driving, dropped off a couple groceries, went home, all this press came out. The next day, I come to the office, I've got missed calls from uh, uh senior vice presidents at some of the biggest retailers in the world, uh, missed calls from some clients worth tens of billions of dollars. They're all like, how can we get this into our campus or our system? Cities were calling me for the next week. How can we bring this to Los Angeles or Miami or whatever else it is? We thought it was game over, piece of cake. All of that next month was spent putting together these fancy proposals and figuring out, hey, can we charge them a million or two million? What can we do here? And then a week passed, two weeks passed, a month passed, and we realized we learned actually nothing over the last month about our product. We weren't able to grow it at all. We weren't able to get smarter. We weren't able to have better conversations with our clients. We weren't able to give examples. And not only that, but to close any deal of value in a new technology or not, it can take many, many, many months. So our options were either A, sit around and wait until a client loves our smooth talking salesperson enough, or we've really magically got something right on the first try, or B, go build that credibility. Um, so what I actually did was after a little bit of frustration, after five or six weeks of kind of just sitting around and nothing happening, dreaming that one day it might, I walked around, I went for a walk, um, just kind of frustrated to clear my head, and I started walking past all these restaurants. So I just walked into one small business at a time, told them who I was, told them what we did, and told them we would love to do some deliveries for them. So our first few clients were not Walmart or HEB or XL Parts because they didn't want to take a bet on somebody who's never done anything before. Our first few clients, and big shout out to them, was Yangon Burmese Restaurant in Burlingame, California. And it was Laguna Florist on the corner of uh, Broadway and Laguna in Burlingame. And it was all these little restaurants and cafes. It was Kesara Sarah, the vegan cookie shop. And it was all these little businesses that we got to do over a thousand deliveries for that paid us, you know, low amounts. Three backhouse bread paid us three dollars to do deliveries around all their customers delivering bread around every Thursday afternoon. And it wasn't about the money, it was about two things. 
The first thing is about building our product better. So some of our core features that our larger enterprise customers really loved came from real on the ground experience, selling to these tiny little businesses for a couple of bucks. But the second most important thing is, you know, Walmart's coming to our offices or having a call with us every other week for a six to eight month period, however long that sales cycle was. Well, every single time they came, we were allowed to show them something we learned, show them a product we built, tell them that, hey, we actually signed up a new customer. It's this uh, little grocery store, so it's kind of in your industry. So our credibility got to build and build and build so that by the time Walmart signed up, we had already done a couple thousand deliveries. By the time the next grocery customer signed up, not only had we done all these deliveries for these small businesses, but we had done them for Walmart as well. And so credibility begins to build throughout that process. Yeah, so it's kind of like doing things that don't scale, right? What uh, Airbnb did their Obama O's and Cap and McCain's or something like that for cereal boxes, right? That's like a big uh, urban, not urban legend, but a historical story of how they kind of got started is they did a lot of things that wouldn't scale to build some awareness. And then from there, it's like crawl, walk, run into getting into the bigger, bigger deals. Absolutely. Sometimes you got to elbow your way into the room. Uh, the other example I like there is uh, Patrick Collison, the CEO of Stripe. Uh, literally went around to all the other founders at Y Combinator and put Stripe's code onto their platforms. So not only was it, hey, do you like Stripe? Would you try it? All right, call me when you what you think. He would go do it in front of them, grab their laptops, put the code on there, make them try it, and then basically force fed himself beta customers. Now it's it's not the necessarily smoothest way of doing things, but it's the one that works, the one that allows you to do those two things, which is A, improve your product, and B, grow your credibility. Yeah, and I think that that is something that a lot of people really underestimate is like scrappiness or like shrewdness, how much you're willing to be kind of uncomfortable and not uncomfortable as in I'm uncomfortable asking a person for a business, but it's, it's like, I'm going to do things that others aren't willing to do. And I grew up as a person who wasn't super affluent. So like the only way I got money, I didn't get an allowance. I had to carry cans to the grocery store. That's the only way I got money. And a lot of kids probably that got, uh, cash handed to him probably wouldn't have been willing to do those things. And I think that that's something that people don't optimize for is like your willingness to be uncomfortable and do things that others aren't willing to do. Yeah. Scrappiness comes out in a, in a lot of different ways. And you just, in the very early stages, you know, and this changes over time. Once you've got a sort of a process established, once you sort of know your target market and you're able to really focus on a certain customer set, well, then you begin to build out a script. You don't want, you want some originality from your salespeople, but you don't want too much scrappiness because now it's bad for the brand or whatever else. <laughs> but what's really, really fun about the early stages is that nobody cares about you. Nobody knows your name. You have no real brand reputation to defend. And if you can break down that ego, you can really go far. One of my probably, uh, favorite strangest stories is that um, for an old company called Romer, we were basically trying to be Airbnb for the outdoors. So you can reserve private property to go hiking, fishing, camping, uh, off-leash dog walking, whatever, all these incredible things on private property that you can't do in other places. And so we were thinking about, well, who's our, our best customer? Right? Should we go after the fisherman who just wants this private pond where he can go sit with his grandson and, and, and fish out of a pond stocked 100 years ago and he'd pay 20 bucks a person to do that? Or do we want to go after uh, group dog walkers, You know, a, a whole team of moms who want to take their kids and their dogs and go out on a walk on a private trail where it's safe and you're not worried about public parks? One group that we found um, that was particularly interesting was a group on Meetup called Nactivists. And I don't know if you've uh, if you've ever met an activist, 
But uh, what they like to do, they love to do activities, and they prefer to do them naked. And so found this group. I was like, oh my God, all these people. And on Meetup, they had thousands of people in our region there, in our perfect market, and they were going on hikes naked, and they were doing yoga naked, and they were doing painting classes naked. And it was just a group of folks who like to do these activities naked. And so we thought, what an amazing customer segment for activities on private property. You've yeah. got landowners who are trying to make money because farming is really hard business or because their land is an asset that's just sitting there and, and just costing them money. On the other hand, you've got these people who are begging for privacy. And right now, it, we found out as we kind of interviewed a couple of them, we found out that they were actually just going to public state parks. Uh, they'd go take their clothes off, they'd hike a bit, and if they hear see anyone coming around, they go put their clothes back on. And that's just not a, ideal. A, not ideal. It's a bad user experience on both sides. So I was sending meet, I was sending messages through Meetup, trying to get in touch with them. Just couldn't figure out how to get this amazing group of. They were all relatively affluent people, um, and all in our target market. So what I ended up doing was I just joined their meetup, was accepted, and I found an event that the head of the meetup was going to. His name was Kurt, and I saw that Kurt was going to an event called Naked Yoga. And so I said, hey, oh, you know, I guess I gotta go. So I show up to the studio in Durham, North Carolina. We'd start with our sun salutations. All of a sudden, everybody's naked. We do naked yoga. It's kind of fun. Uh, afterwards, I stop by. Hey, Kurt, uh, my name's Adriel. I sent you a couple messages. This is what we do. Can we talk? We sat down, got a cup of coffee, talked. And that Kyle actually became a client so big, they did something like 15% of our revenue for the next two years. Just his little group just came yeah. and needed our solution. Landowners loved it. They thought it was a little weird, but a lot of hilarious. These yeah. the activists paid a lot of money for our product, and it all came about through this strange, scrappy sort of story where we didn't have a brand to protect, but we knew who our kind of customer was. Yeah, that's that's a great story. It's a fantastic like value tying value to need like in such a perfect way. And it's funny how much those landowners they may have like kind of scoffed at those uh, naked folks, but they love cashing their check. So at the same time, it's like no matter how they felt about it, they're more than happy to take their money. So it's a great example of being able to tie those two parties together that never would have found each other, right? Like you did something that they wouldn't do and you, you help bring them together in a way that added value to everybody. I, I think uh, actually, if you'd like, that's a really great point, I think, to turn the table and, and turn this into a gong podcast um, and ask you a couple questions because one of the things you and I were talking about before this started is about doing something for your clients that others won't do. Yeah. Uh, in our version of the world, I can tell you as a fact, you know, everyone's worried, oh, Airbnb is going to get into our space and start doing outdoor events. I can tell you almost for a fact, Brian Chesky was not doing naked yoga to get right. this client. It just wasn't <laughs> happening. Yeah. When you think about doing things for clients that others don't do, what, what comes to mind? Yeah, there's a, a story I've used and it's not mine. It's one I've lifted from a friend that I'll keep anonymous. Uh, he's been in tech for a while and he ended up starting a, a, a a rehab facility for people that have addictions in the Bay Area. And what he found that he was able to do was <clears throat> oftentimes family therapists will refer you, will refer their patients to these uh, rehab facilities because they want their patients to get better. And they're doing this every day. And what this person I know did is they started keeping the therapist up to date with the progress of the, uh, the patient. And what they found was that no other, um, uh, rehab facilities were willing to take that tiny little step 
and the therapists were so grateful to get literally any information back that they started sending every single one of their, not customers, but their, uh, their patients to this one rehab facility. So he was just inundated with work because he'd done something that was so small that required almost no effort that completely moved the needle for the therapist. So it was the idea is you need to figure out if people are going to refer you business or you've got some channel that can help, uh, you know, doing something that's not scalable, which is letting the therapist know that could actually be scaled out with technology. And I think this person with a background in technology realized that like these people are dying for information. And if I could just do a little bit, that's going to mean a lot to them. And it's one compared to zero isn't that much, but one compared to zero, if no other person out there is even trying is huge. So you can actually do a little bit and get a ton out of it. If you're competing in a place where no one is, where no one is competing. And how does that change across time? You know, you're definitely able to do that in the earliest stages and you and your experience have grown a team from seven SDRs to 70. The company itself changes over that period of time. How is your ability to, do things others won't do or go above and beyond. How does that flexibility, that ability change throughout the growth of the company? Yeah, I think uh, people who are leaders in businesses tend to get there because they're hard workers. They're, you know, they're good at what they do. You don't, I mean, to an extent, people aren't good at what they do, but uh, you get there because you're pretty good at it. And so your natural inclination is to take on more and more and more. But if you've got a team of 25 and then it takes up 40 hours a week, you can't just spend 80 hours a week to get to a team of 50 and then you know, 160 hours a week to get to a team of 150, like that just doesn't work. That doesn't scale. So you have to empower people below you in your team and teach them to do those things, right? Like you are a lever as a leader. You've got to instill that concept into the, into the people that work for you. And so, you know, as I was building the team, I was looking for people that had that, that kind of skill set. But to be honest, I, I was, taxed with doing a lot of other things. So I relied on my team to identify those people who are going to be good fit. So the way I scaled the team and identified the people is I kind of set the broad direction for what I wanted in the people we were hiring. And then I empowered my team to identify them. So one of the things that we did that really helped, this is kind of an unscalable, but when you're trying to hire 10 people a week, you kind of got to do it. We would, uh, it's this concept of a sheepdog. My dad had taught me. So when you have an old sheepdog and you have a puppy, you tie their collars together. So the old one, as they're doing their job, just naturally teaches the young one what to do. Even though the young one has no idea why they're making a left turn right now, they just know that they need to make a left turn. And so uh, that comes from watching and mirroring the older sheepdog. And so what we do is we take experienced SDRs and we take new SDRs and we'd have them interview in a panel. Because what I found was the new SDRs would go interview a person and be like, they were cool. They're really nice. I really liked them we don't care about that. We care about, could they do the job? And so they needed to sit next to a senior person who had interviewed and seen good and bad people. And then they would understand what are the good questions to be asking. And and it kind of really helped share that knowledge throughout the team. So having that, the new SDRs tied to the older ones, kind of like sheepdog mentality really helped quite a bit. When you were setting that direction for the hiring of your team, for the growth of the sales organizations, what are some of the things that you believe is most important in the kind of individuals you're looking for? Yeah, so there are three things that I tended to look for when I was hiring folks. I hope I don't bungle it. Uh, One is I wanted to look for capacity to do the job, right? Like in this job, do you have the bare minimum requirements to at least complete the task? Not like have you done it a million times, to be fair, I was hiring entry level folks. So it's different than hiring like a VP of X, but do you have the broad capacity to do this? And how we sussed that out was like, could they read well? Could they write well? Did, were they responsive? 
you know, when they interviewed, did they compose, they were, were they prepared and like asked good questions and were thoughtful? Like it was very easy to suss that out. Second was, did they have a track record of success? And our thought on that one, I guess my thought on that was, if you were a person who's just great at everything that you do, I could probably put you in another role and you'll probably be pretty good at it too. So like we would look for people who are consistently going above and beyond their peers, right? Like one of, one of the questions we would ask people is like, what is one of your biggest, most proud accomplishments of your life? Some people would be like, I was an Eagle Scout or I, one, one guy was on like uh, the LA Galaxy who was a soccer, professional soccer player. Like these people went above and beyond in certain ways. And some people would say, I graduated from college. And that could be an accomplishment within your family if you're the first person to go. Me being that, like I understand how it goes, but like all of the people applying to this job, save a couple, have graduated from college. So I'm looking for ways that you stood out from your peers that did exactly the same thing as you did. And then the third thing was, are they a cultural fit? And the real question came down to like, if I had to sit next to this person for eight hours on an airplane, would I want to like vomit or would I be pretty happy to continue this conversation after we got off the plane? And I think with four people all having the same interaction with a candidate, you, you walk away because if all four people are like, yes, on all three, there's no question. Let's just hire this person and move on rather than dragging that type of a thing out. How different are the kinds of people as you go throughout the growth of the company? So uh, if I got it right, you kind of started when the team was seven SDRs, you grew yep. it to a little over 70. What were you looking for at, at people 10 through 20? And then what were you looking for at people 60 through 80? And, and it might help just to add some context, um, if you could tell us a little about kind of the company and perhaps that, that can give context to the kind of individual you're looking for. Yeah, for sure. So <laughs> this was a B2B enterprise company selling deals north of 100K to companies that made at least a hundred million or more in revenue. That was when I left. So that was like kind of a, the 60 to 80 SDRs. Early on, we were you know, selling to companies that had at least 5 million in funding. We we're doing 25K deals. So it grew over those few years. We, we definitely matured. Um, you know, Early on, we're looking for someone that met those three criteria. It, at the later stages, we were starting to look for people that could do specific roles in other teams in the company. Because what we found is that, you know, my SDR team ended up becoming the farm league for the rest of the company. Because everyone, no one wanted to take a risk on a new kid out of college. But if they'd been an SDR for six months and had been a top performer and maybe had a marketing degree, maybe they're a good person to move into a marketing associate role. Or if they were spending time interacting with clients or maybe doing some extra demos or pitching to to channel providers because they never worked out, they might be fast-tracked towards sales. So we would identify those types of people that had maybe a capacity in a specific role that we were deficient on, which in a growing company is sales, marketing, customer success, finance, and operations, right? Like that's, we were looking for any of those people. So uh, early on, we just wanted people with talent. Later stages, we wanted people with talent, but kind of a focus as well. That We wanted them to have a direction and we wanted to encourage and create that path for them because you know, when a company is only 50 people or 30 people, you might go anywhere. The role you'll move into out of this one may not exist in the company. When we're 400 people, the role you want will probably exist. We just need to figure out which one of the ones that exist will be right for you. Just because what an SDR means or what a salesperson means changes over the life cycle of the company. I mean, you even in, in that line right there, you gave a nice story where at first you started off selling to anybody who had raised 5 million and yeah. the check size was about 25,000 and then you grew into being considerably larger. 
the yeah. kind of individual you're looking for changes, the number of individuals, what they're doing, how they're speaking, how you're communicating, everything changes over the course of the company. But to take it all the way back to the early stage, when do you think a CEO or a founder needs to be in looking for their first SDR? And then whose role is that? For example, uh, can a CEO who's technical hire an SDR before hiring a true VP of sales? Does that change if the CEO has a business background or is a seller themselves? Um, does that change if they've sold a couple contracts already or if they're really in the early stages? How does, how does a founder or CEO think about hiring their very first SDRs? Yeah, so there are two, two angles that we got to take care of. One is if you're a bootstrap company and one is if you're a venture-backed company, right? I'm going to, I'll talk about both. If you're a venture-backed company, the uh, second you should hire an SDR is like the minute you get money, right? Like you have got to get on that horse as quickly as possible. That said, I, I kind of have this belief that you really shouldn't pass something off until you kind of understand it. I think that if you hire someone and you don't even have a sense for how, how should meetings be set up, who's our target market, who are our personas and the messaging we should use, just hiring an SDR and sitting them down and saying, start setting meetings without really a lot of clarity as to what they should be doing is going to set them up for failure. Um, I, when I started my company, which was bootstrapped, I had, I couldn't really hire an SDR cause I couldn't afford them. Right. So I had to make sure that I had customers that had bought. So by that point I understood the process completely. I could coach someone and hand that off. And so, uh, I've really been thinking a lot about as a founder or any executive in a business, you get too bogged down in the details of too much doing. And, you know, as an executive, you can either be doing, delegating, deciding, or really deleting tasks. And at all times, you need to be like delegating to other people and let them be empowered to make those types of decisions. So uh, as early as possible, as you're comfortable passing off some of that decision making to somebody else, do it, like get it off your plate so you can focus on the more critical roles because a CEO shouldn't be like setting meetings for very long. There are plenty of companies you could outsource that to or hire someone right away because there's so much opportunity cost with your time because like early on, as you probably know, having been in very early stage startups, there's so much to do that don't necessarily add value in a lot of ways. I was talking to someone about this the other day of when you start a business, you got to buy a domain, you got to host a website, you've got to set up email, you got to admin accounts. Like there's just all these little things that take up all your time and SDRing yourself is just one more of those things. So as quickly as you can get that off, I recommend you do it. I two points there. First of all, I love your breakdown of uh, you can always be doing, delegating, deciding, or deleting yeah. tasks. Haven't heard that before, and that probably applies for anybody trying to figure out how to manage their time. Um, the second one was uh, sort of just to add the counter perspective there. Yeah. You mentioned that you know once you raise money, you should hire your SDR right away because you really got to go, go, go. And in some places, that's absolutely true. I think sometimes, depending on how fortunate you've been about raising money or how the market's evolving, sometimes going too fast has its own challenges. Yes. Um, so for example, if you were able to raise money really early and you go, 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 you might be selling the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. Or perhaps worse, you might be selling it to the wrong kinds of people. So maybe you're finding a lot of growth for the first little bit because you go, go, go and you were able to cut costs and cut prices, but you never really either A, understood the true problems or B, understood who has them the most. You might be selling into the wrong industry and then your growth stops all of a sudden because you didn't think about the tangential next ladder to climb to. So sometimes 
uh, going too fast has its own challenges and it's really perhaps in the beginning and an SDR can help with that can help you get more interviews help you get more calls help you ask more questions especially if they've had a little bit of experience they can help you understand what product features matter the most and and there is a flip side to going too fast too early yeah, uh, we went through that as well, where we had hired uh, very quickly. We'd expanded into a new office because we couldn't hire SDRs fast enough. And then we had to just shut down that office because we'd overhired and we overestimated what we were capable of doing. So we probably burned a couple million bucks of the funding that we got, no doubt. So there, there's risk there. And I don't want people to be uh, you know, haphazardly jumping into hiring people. Like It's got to be a, uh, an intelligent decision there. But there was uh, this kind of study that I'd heard on some podcast where uh, basically they took two groups of people that were taking an art class. And for one group, they said at the end of the class, you will have the chance to attempt one item of like ceramics, right? Uh, and the other half of the class, they said, you're gauged only on the volume of, or the quantity of items that you produce, like the weight or something like that. So it's completely fundamentally different methods of grading the students. So one, one grade was quality and one was quantity. And that was literally the only metric. And at the end of the class, the people with the quantity, they ended up making higher quality things than the people who only focused on one because having at bats is super critical. Like having a bunch of shitty conversations actually makes you better at having good conversations too. Um, I think, you know, having done podcasts, I'm probably better at, at it now than on my very first one. And I think that that's kind of intuitive. So there is an advantage to, you know, you are going to burn some time and money with SDRs if you hire too soon, but you're also going to get some critical practice, right? Like you're just practicing doing these things. And it's not like it's, it's not like you can't undo that, right? You can't, it's not like you can't make changes. It's not like you're stuck with this one way of doing SDRing. Like you've got opportunity to make change. It's not permanent. It's not like you picked your company name and now we got to unwind that. That's a much harder process than maybe shifting some SDR focus. Uh, that that art story was was fantastic. I point taken um, uh, <laughs> about making the right number of ceramics. Let me ask yeah. a question about the experience you mentioned, where you guys grew too fast, opened another office, yeah. and had to shut it down. When when that decision was made, um, can you tell a little bit about? perhaps the context of that decision, maybe why you grew too fast. Was it wrong market, wrong timing, wrong industry, wrong pricing, wrong whatever else? And then the second question, and the one I'm, I'm really probably especially interested in is, how did it feel to have grown so much and then to cut the cord? Uh, awful. It, so one, letting people know or uh, leading teams and being a leader of a team or a company or whatever, and then having to uh, you know, you've pulled people in this one direction and then you have to tell them that you are wrong and your life is going to be impacted, but mine's really not is an awful, awful situation. Like these people had quit their jobs to come work for us. And we taught, we told them that this is the vision that we want to build. And Oh, by the way, we're, we're we decided that's not going to work out anymore. So you got to figure something out. You know, it's really important to try to do the right thing for folks. So we tried to move folks into uh, Mountain View where our headquarters was and, and try to help them out as much as we could, but there's a limit to what we can do. So first of all, it was awful. You know, your initial question of, was the question, how did we decide to start expand or how do we decide to shut down or why did we do it in general? Yeah, what, what caused a shutdown? You said you grew too fast. Why, why is that? Just so other people can, can learn from example of how not to grow too fast. 
Yeah, don't do this. So we had, uh, we'd grown quickly in the Bay Area. Uh, all of our SCRs were in one office. We were doing, it was going great, but we wanted to grow faster. I mean, we'd take it on over the time that I was there, $100 million in funding. So we we're growing like crazy and we needed more opportunities. So we needed more SDRs and more salespeople. Um, we had a different ratio where we had two SDRs to one sales rep, and these were for enterprise deals. So they were inundated with meetings. So to keep that volume up, we needed more people and we couldn't hire quickly enough in the Bay Area because it's very competitive, right? Like all these companies use SDRs. They all pay a lot of money. We saw people were ch jumping ship quite a bit. So our thought was, you know, we expanded it into Phoenix and we thought that because there's not quite as many, there are fewer tech companies there. We might be able to be kind of like the, the sexy company that everyone wants to work for. It's a way for us to stand out. This is before a lot of companies had expanded down into there. Um, so we took that shot and we ended up getting a big grant from the state of uh, Arizona for training and all kinds of things like that. So it made a lot of sense financially for us to try there because we thought that our cost for hiring would be lower. Uh, we had this big subsidy for training. So travel would be subsidizing uh, quite a bit. Office space was cheaper than, I mean, we're in Mountain View in the middle of Google. So we were really competing for office space and having a hard time there. So everything pointed towards that. And then once we got it started, the failure was we didn't move anybody down there. We should have had a significant portion of the team there because what ended up happening was this Phoenix team just got kind of like left off to the side and they, they weren't really uh, tied into our culture and our way of doing things. They were kind of like, oh, the Phoenix folks do this and well, but headquarters does this. And so it was kind of unfair to them that we didn't really put the full resources of the company to say, you are, you are equal to us. You are part of us and we're going to invest in having people there with you. So that was a probably a mistake on our end that prevented us from really seeing a lot of success. So if you're going to do that, really commit to moving people over there. Cause it's, it's, you know, you learn so much just from being around people, hearing them talk, hearing them pitch, but when everybody's brand new and no one knows what to do, you're kind of you're kind of going to get the short end of the stick on that. Yeah, that last point is perfect because I think you also learn as being a salesperson at a startup, you learn a lot, not just by being uh, tied to the collar of the sheepdog of another salesperson, but by being in the same pen as all your engineers or product yeah. people or, or ops people. There's a ton to learn just by being around the other people at other facets of the company so that you can sell better, you can tell the story better, you can warn your customers earlier if something's gonna be challenging, you can be more trustworthy, knowledgeable, things like that. Yeah, and not having sales, or not sales ops, but sales engineers in-house in Phoenix meant that they didn't have any resources right there that they could lean over and say, hey Steve, how should I handle this situation technically? They had to call up our sales engineers and hope that they weren't on another call. And it's just, it, it, it wasn't as well thought out as we could have done it. And it failed and it was totally unfair to them for sure. Yeah. Uh, Kyle, I love uh, ending gong interviews on a few rapid fire questions. You up for it? Let's do it. Let's do it. Uh, are there any sales or startup books that have been helpful to you? Yeah, that uh, delegating, deleting one, I think I butchered it, but there's a book called Clockwork, which is really, I think, uh, applicable to any person that really wants to be an executive, start their own company. Uh, basically, the guy talks about uh, how you need to get things off your plate so you can focus on the most important functions of your role or of the company. So that's a Clockwork is a good one that I really recommend. Love it. Uh, what is the sale you are most proud of landing? Oh, man, the sale I'm most proud of landing. The First one I had for my company, Sift Data, it was, uh, I don't want to give away names, but I, I was, I'd been building a product and I had my first customer lined up. They'd heard about me and I was at the point where they wanted to buy, but I didn't even have a bank account yet. I was like essentially a week ahead of them the whole time or like a day ahead of them. It's kind of like the kid 
uh, if you, you could teach a class, if you just read one chapter ahead, that's basically how the sale went. I was just constantly five minutes ahead of them. So I was trying to delay install as much as I could, but it's pretty satisfying when you've taken something from an idea to coding a product to someone actually paying you money for it is one of the most satisfying things I've ever done. Uh, what's a well-known company today that you would have loved leading sales for in the early stage? Oh man. Uh, it would have been Yelp because they had so many people and that was, that sounds pretty well, awful. Well, was the company Yelp? Not Yelp. I would have said not, not Yelp. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would have said the, the company that I was at at Gigia, I'm so fortunate to have been in exactly the position I was in. I wouldn't have changed anything. I think that that I was very lucky to get in when I did and to be at the inflection point that I was and like, I could not have timed that any better. And my skill set just ended up aligning with where the rest of my career went. So I think I, I hit a grand slam on that. Well, good for you. And, and I agree. Yelp sounds like an absolute monster. <laughs> <laughs> um, a couple more, last couple of questions here. Uh, tell me about an early sales mentor and something you learned from them. Hmm. Uh, early sales mentor. So one of my, uh, early ones was uh, a guy named Todd Lathrop. He ended up starting a consulting business and worked at a company called Checker. He, he was the head of North America sales and he, and I was the head of SDR. So we were working super closely together and uh, I was fortunate to, you know, he'd actually sold copiers. He told me a lot of the stories and funny things about that. And so I just, I got a lot of good direction and guidance from him um, about the concept of doing enterprise sales. Cause I didn't have any experience to that prior to becoming an SDR and managing a team. So he was someone that I leaned on heavily. That's fantastic. Well, uh, Kyle, to finish this off, where can people learn more about you, some of your writings, some of the stuff you're working on now? Yeah. So I have a podcast called the Kaizen Podcast, which you're hopefully listening to right now as well. Um, that's where I put out a lot of content and then I'm on LinkedIn posting on there quite a bit. So Kicksaw and Siftdata are two companies I run. Uh, I'd love to, love to talk to anyone that wants to talk about them. What about yourself? Uh, awesome. Well, you can certainly find me on LinkedIn. I'm all over the internet at a Lubarski too. Uh, and shoot me an email, Adriel at udev.com. I would love to talk sales, self-driving cars or whatever. Adriel, thanks so much for the time. Kyle, I love Kaizen. <laughs> talk soon. Bye. Well, there you have it. Kyle Morris, ladies and gentlemen, with a little bit of Adriel. Early stage sales gives an opportunity for massive creativity. Sales skill sets vary as an organization grows. And growth for the sake of growth, not always the right move. Unless nudists are involved. <laughs> if you want to learn more about Kyle, you can find him on LinkedIn at linkedin.com slash in slash KyleMorris1. And if you like the podcast, leave us a review. If you didn't, tweet me at alubarski2 and it'll make it all better. Thanks, and happy selling.